Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all. To a Mother's Day edition of Be Real. Guys, it is a special episode that we are recording on Sunday, May 8th. Gosh, what a day for celebrating wonderful women in our lives. Noah. Sir. What's up, man? Hey, man. I'm Chance, by the way. How are uh, we doing? I think most people know. Um, and people, if they didn't know us before, after hearing us converse with our mothers, certainly <laughs> will. Yeah, you can you can hear what opinions yeah. and speech patterns made us, what right. created us. Yeah, I had such a great time both talking to my mother about a movie and also listening to you talk to your mother about a movie. Same. I uh, it was great. It was heartwarming and enlightening about these two very different movies we're getting into but we asked our moms what they wanted to do in the spirit of the day yeah that's the setup for today we asked our mothers what their favorite movies were and my mother picked out of africa and chance your mother picked the royal tenenbaums correct and then i actually watched the movie with my mother because geography allowed for that uh we Mm -hmm. watched it last night and then um actually we watched it like yesterday afternoon which was sort of an experience uh in and of itself. But anyway, and then you uh, watched it with your mom, you know, from your respective coasts. Right. And, and then I non-coast. called her. Uh... And then you guys had this wonderful chat about the Royal Tenenbaums. And like, well, that's that's what I want to get into today. If I can just hop right in. Please do. So I think it's so interesting, like psychologically, that the movies that both of our mothers picked are all about what it means to like feel at home. Sure. And which I thought was like so fascinating. And to take it a step further, they're all films like very much rooted in motherhood. And we did not tell them to pick that. No, this is just happens to be. So to take it even another step further chance, I think the big question for me this week is how does, how do our mother's movie tastes influence our own? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I, I'm more interested in what you have to say regarding Out of Africa. I think my mom liking uh, one of Wes Anderson's best is is more traceable. But let's do you want to talk about that uh, after we hear from Nancy on Out of Africa? Yeah, let's uh, let's hear my mom and I get into it. Uh, if I can paint a sort of scene for you. Uh, do that. We were so we watched the movie Saturday afternoon and then this morning. This is about like. This is a crazy time to record a podcast of this nature. We like sat down at like 11 a.m. Or maybe it was a little bit later than that. But it was like in the morning and the daylight was out. We usually record these like well in the dark, like well into the night. So like getting into that spirit was sort of fun. But yeah, we were just (laughs) sitting then in the dining room just like chatting about out of Africa. And uh, we had a good time. So give it a listen. It's an odd feeling. Farewell. Men go off to be tested for courage. And if we are tested at all, it's for patience, for doing without. And I'd always known that. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm happy to report that I'm recording here from Lawrenceville, New Jersey, on this Mother's Day 2016. And I had the pleasure of watching the film Out of Africa with my mother, uh, out of Africa being her favorite film. Mom, how are you? I'm great. It's always great when you're home, Noah. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, watching Out of Africa for the first time yesterday, it was very... Uh, I had never seen it before. Uh, when did you first encounter this film? Well, I saw it when it came out in 1985. Dad and I went to the movie theater to see it. So were you guys married at that point? We were not. That was... Uh, it was a date night. It was a date, yes. Do you remember the circumstances? I don't specifically know. Okay. I remember the sense of being in the theater and seeing the wonderful photography of Africa. It's pretty spectacular on the yeah. big screen. 
What was the sort of like the feeling around the movie, like when it was released? Did people know it was going to be like, was it like the big critical darling of the year? Because it ended up winning like seven Oscars. Yes. Um, yeah, I think it was a pretty big deal at the time. Um, but I checked last night after we watched it. It did get seven Academy Awards, but she did not get the Academy Award. Oh, Meryl Streep didn't get the Academy Award? No. But she was nominated. She was. Okay. I think she should have gotten it, but. Yeah. She was pretty amazing. So when I asked you to do this podcast, uh, the conceit was that you, we would discuss your favorite film. So why, of all the films you've seen over the past however many years you've been watching films, why did you consider this one to be your favorite? Well, I guess um, because of her character. I mean, Meryl Streep is amazing in everything she's in. We had talked yeah. last night about how she's a chameleon. She turns into her characters. But she was such a strong feminist character in this movie um and I think I really identified with that she kind of went her own way and did her own thing and um you know I just liked her character so much so before we get too much into the movie can you briefly synopsize for those who haven't seen it or those who have and just simply don't remember uh yeah it's the story about uh Karen Blixen who later becomes the writer Isaac Dinesen um she was uh, born in Denmark, and, and the movie takes place from the 1913 to 1931, and I think at that time in, in that time in women's lives were pretty constraining, and she had had a failed love affair, and then she um, was getting older, I guess, and didn't know what was going to happen to her, and she proposes to her ex-lover's brother that they get married, and go to Africa. And so they go to Africa and they... Initially to raise cattle. Raise but then cattle. she arrives and it's not going to be cattle. No, they're going to plant coffee at this high elevation in Kenya that has never had coffee grown there before. Right. So right off the bat, the marriage gets off to a kind of a rocky start. And then early in the trip, uh, as she's coming to Africa, she quickly encounters... Robert Redford's character, Dennis. Right. Who's just walking through the, the Sahara, or just walking through the, the plains with just two big uh, elephant tusks on his back. Which he tosses onto her train and then walks away. Yeah, he so, makes quite a first impression. Yeah, and they, they, there's kind of some uh, negative vibes there when they first meet. He's like, well, she came out there with all of her worldly possessions, her furniture and her china and her crystal to set up housekeeping out there and he kind of scoffs at her and bringing all her stuff out into the middle of nowhere there yeah and ultimately as the movie goes on uh, in it's nearly three hour runtime um they ultimately do have this love affair and then like the conflict of the movie becomes her need for like grounding and stuff and like definition of things and then his sort of you know, if I'm going to I'm going to buy an airplane today and I'm going to fly it today and then I'm going to do something else tomorrow and I'm going to go on safari with these guys and I'll see you when I see you. Right. Don't tie me down. Don't tie me down. But she really likes to be tied down. Right. I would she, say. That's yes. She, she does. She, that's why she brings all her stuff there and surrounds herself with a the world that she's comfortable with and uh, very frustrated with her philandering husband and then her absent lover. Yeah. So is there a specific sequence in the film that, like, really speaks to you? Because there's a lot of, like, really gorgeous wide shots of the African plains and, you know, all these great sort of animals, you know, wandering around and them interacting with them. And there's that one of my favorite scenes was uh, the one with the... uh, the lions just sort of coming at them and there's a slow motion sequence of her taking the first shot and ultimately saving them. Right. Yeah, and then there was a earlier scene where uh, there's a lion coming at her and he appears miraculously out of nowhere and she asks him if he has a gun and to shoot it and he like is waiting to see what the lion's going to do before he shoots. And right. She keeps yelling, shoot it! And he's like, just give it a minute. Well, he seems like, that seems to be his M.O. is that he shows up exactly when he needs, or when she needs him and like right. not a moment before. Right. So he does that with the lion sequence. He does that with, ultimately, at the, the end of the film. Oh, here comes the dog. Speaking of wild animals. Speaking of wild animals, here's the puppy. 
Um, well, I like the scene where um, uh, Robert Redford and his friend are having dinner with her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, up until then, he's sort of dismissive of her and her worldly needs. And, and she's kind of got her eye on the friends. And she invites them to dinner. And he's like, well, why should we come to dinner? Can you, like, sing? Can you do anything? And she says, well, I tell stories. And there's a scene where she says, well, I have this game where um, <coughs> you give me a sentence, any sentence at all about anything, and then I'll start tell a story about it. Right. And there's this wonderful scene where she starts telling the story, and then they, you see, like, time is passing, and she's still telling the story. Right, she goes on for, like, hours telling the story yeah, about this. Yeah, they start at the dining room table, and they end up at the fireplace. Yeah. She's still telling the story, and they're just mesmerized. And you could tell he's finally, like, thinking maybe there's something worthwhile about this woman after all. Right. So let me ask you, because, I mean, you're familiar with our rating system. And typically, I mean, my question about this movie, about how watchable it is, is the fact that it is, like, one of these, like, very long, very, like, epic, like, clearly based on, like, important literature kind of books so can you justify the like nearly three hour runtime and make an argument that this is a watchable movie and why? You know, I, as we, I hadn't seen it in years. I mean, I have a copy of it on VHS, which <laughs> I've watched many times, but not recently. And when it started last night, I thought, oh, this might not have been a good choice because it starts off very slowly. Right. And there's lots of scenes, these wide open scenes out there. But then it kind of builds, I think. Um, and I don't know. I thought by the end I was really sucked into it again. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe it could have been edited down. It didn't need to be almost three hours. Sure. They could have. I mean, she doesn't even get together with him until like two-thirds of the movie. It's over. I mean, that's not the central thing about the story. I guess it's not just the romance with him, but um, just her place in the world. Right. My other question about this movie and just like how it has aged is the fact that I thought it was funny that Robert Redford, who, I mean, he is like a main character in this movie, but ultimately he's not the protagonist of the film, yet he's given first billing yes. in the film, which I think like in at this moment in Hollywood and all the talk about like just how like female actresses are, uh, how they work compared and how they're compensated compared to their male counterparts, it was just sort of interesting because the movie is Meryl Streep. Yes. Like, there's very few sequences without Meryl Streep, yet Robert Redford gets first billing, which I found so... I guess that sort of speaks to where she was in her career at that point, right. that he gets first billing. And also, he's a very interesting choice for that character since the community in Kenya where they're living is all... English people right. in England. And he and, doesn't even try for a British accent. Well, apparently, I was reading last night, They start. he started with a British accent, and they said the director thought that people wouldn't accept Robert Redford putting on an English accent. Right. So he's there to be Robert Redford, <laughs> right. not to be the, the real-life English character, Dennis Finch Hatton. Whereas Meryl Streep, who's a chameleon... Yeah took on a Danish accent and sounded wonderful and was very believable. Right. Nobody can ex expect Robert Redford to <laughs> act and put on an English accent. Right. I mean, he's just the character he always plays, whether it's, you know, in that time, like The Natural or uh, The yeah. Sundance Kid or whatever. Yeah, he's sort of that rogue character. It's a little disappointing that they just couldn't find a great British actor right. to play that part, but I guess they wanted it to... You know, they needed a big name to attract people to watch the movie. I don't know. It's a little sad. It's tough sad to say. Because I, I don't think that he was the 100% right person. I mean, I think he did an okay job, but... Yeah, I mean, he's got the charisma, I think, to pull it off. But ultimately, yeah, it's an... I mean, if you're going by the source material, it's definitely an interesting choice. Yeah. And I agree with you that um, Meryl Streep's character is, um, like, a very sort of feminist, very, you know, you know even in the scene where she goes through the, you know, this this long trek to bring these supplies to these guys who are hanging out waiting for, you know, World War One to affect them. And everyone's sort of staring at her, like, why did a woman just, like, lead this party through Africa to bring us stuff? Um, but at the same time, it's sort of interesting that her character, 
like her idea of success is, you know, getting married and having kids. Right. Like it's, so I wondered about that too. And if that's like sort of a product of, well, it's a product, of course, the source material, but a product of like what, you know, viewers wanted to see in 1985. You know, I have to disagree with you there. No? That's great. That's, that's why I said it. I feel like it's the same issue that women are still facing today about whether they can have it all. Can they have marriage and family? Can they have an independent life? Can they run their own coffee plantation in Africa and still get married and have children? I mean, one of the other issues that comes up in this movie is she gets sick and now she's not able to have kids. And well, she gets sick because of right. a disease that her philandering husband gives her. Right. And then she, it's interesting, she um, decides not to divorce her husband initially because then she'll be left alone as an unmarried woman, which there's a stigma against at that time. Um, but then her husband does go ahead and divorce her because he wants to marry somebody else. And so she tells Dennis, well, I'm getting divorced, so then I don't suppose you're interested in getting married. And he's like, absolutely not, because he's like, no strings attached here. Um, and so she, I think she's really torn. I mean, she wants to be this independent woman that leads a, a, a group across the, the, the veldt there. And then on the other hand, she wants to get married and, you know, serve her fancy dinners on her china. Right. So I think, I think that's just the thing with women that hasn't changed. I mean, with different, you know, things about it today, but it's still that same issue of having it all. Yeah. And can women have it all while men go romping off on safaris? Sure. Whatever the current version of safaris are. Yeah. And the last thing I guess I want to talk about, too, is the idea of this movie's read on colonialism mm -hmm. and how, you know, and I think the movie sort of is aware that it needs to be a commentary on colonialism because of inherent criticism and because the movie is made 70 years after it's taking place and right. politics have changed. But the idea of all these people, all these British and sort of white people from not Africa have gathered here. And there's this great speech that Robert Redford gives about the fact that they've all come here because they know it's impermanent and they know that they're just sort of passing through. And the fact that they shouldn't try to influence or educate these people because they have their own, they have their own way. And Meryl Streep's character, you know, she starts a school for these people. Presumably she is like paying wages to all of the tribe that are working on the plantation, but she's trying to sort of westernize them. And Robert Redford is sort of, he sort of rallies against that in saying that they're not, that's not what they want. You know, they don't understand living beyond this moment and they don't get our like Western worries. Yeah, I think again, there's a, there's a dichotomy there because, you know, he, she refers to the people that live and work on her land as my Kikuyu, the tribe that's there. And he calls her out on that and says, they're not your Kikuyu. They're, they were here first. This is their land. And then at the end when she loses the plantation and is leaving, um, she's trying desperately to find a place for them to live because they live on the land that belongs to the plantation. And when she leaves, it's going to be sold off and they won't have any place to live. So after, so what was the last time you saw this movie? It wasn't in the theaters. No. You've seen it since. I've seen it since, but not in a long time. Right. So would you still call this your favorite movie? I think I would because of, you know, when I said it was my favorite movie, I just kind of remembered thinking, oh, I love this movie. But now after watching it again with you and talking about it, I think it's because of her and her character and what a strong um, image of a woman she is. And I think that part of it is timeless. Great. Well, thanks, Mom. Sure. Happy Mother's Day. I love you. I love you, too. This was a great way to spend Mother's Day. Terrific. All right. Well done. How do you think we did? Did we, did we have, like, a good conversation? Yeah. I think it was really astute. Nancy came, uh, came out firing with the word dichotomy, uh, and... I think I think she 
I really agree, agree with everything she said. I mean, oh, she smoked me on feminism, and uh, I mean, as she should, right? <laughs> but like, yeah, she like the apple clearly doesn't fall far uh, from the tree when it comes to just like dropping big words to make a point. No, no, that's great. Uh, so, Chance, you either like cried your way through or suffered your way through three hours of out of Africa. <laughs> so I've got to know, like, what are your initial impressions here? It is really funny to like uh, briefly extend your family to a to a third person on this day and like to watch a movie they'd never seen before. Well, okay, so it took me three different sittings, which um, well, it which is, is basically fine. a mini series. Yeah, <laughs> right. It could easily be a mini series. Um, but no, I I was impressed. Um, I think. And everything that you said about it was true, and I think the doubts that you had about its about its ultimate watchability, I'm sorry to say, I think are true. Um, but well, I think my mom got there too. Yeah, but why don't we talk a little bit, um, if you don't mind, just like a couple things that I really liked about it. Yeah, lay it um, on me. I think they do a, a really good job of like finding these characters who have gray areas and have like a lot of neutrality to them like as much as this is a has the scope of an epic movie it's not that epic of a movie because the arcs the narrative arcs are not that sharp it's really just sort of a a story about Karen and going and like existing like these people who all have their flaws and their wants kind of like bumping up against each other in different ways and different settings for three hours. And then it's, it's sort of over. Like, I think if you did like a, like a narrative arc of this movie, it would not be that crazy. It would just be like some different settings and a few. Well, it's uh, like a very sort of very faithful sort of novel movie. mm -hmm. Like it sort of unfolds the way like a book does. And it doesn't yes. have the punchiness of, and it, like my mom said, it's like a pretty slow start. Right. But and like a slow end too. And a slow end too. But like, it's just so like it, for me at least, I felt it was so like fucking authentic. <laughs> You're going to have to back that one up. Like it, it has this sort of like un, like untethered, like we're going for the Oscar here guys and we're going to succeed. Sure. Like, yeah. it has this sort of, like, Sidney Pollock, like, all of his other movies, too, I feel like the same way, and most notably, like, Tootsie. Yeah. It's just, like, a not a very big story movie, but just, like, get the right people in the cast. Like, as far as prestige goes, like, my mom said that uh, Robert Redford's probably miscast, and I would agree with that. But at the same time, it's such Meryl Streep's show. Oh, she's so good. And she's so fucking I good. I just want to point out, like, just how the level of difficulty of, like, what she is doing to, like, be the human center of a three-hour movie where you are, like, forceful and reticent and mannered and serious and can crack a joke and are, like, changing as a person. Like, that is so hard to do. Like, oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, she's, and the accent is amazing. And she did not win the Oscar for that. That's, that's, that's tough. I mean, she's clearly like the Academy has made it up to her since. Right. But, but yeah, probably it was in performances just, that weren't quite as good as this. I would argue that that is very true. Yeah. But she is like, she is a chameleon. She is an actor. And yeah. seeing her like Robert Redford almost doesn't even matter in this movie. He's like a prop yeah. that moves around. The only person that I say can meet her on screen is the husband. Well, because he very easily, and I want to transition to, I think, a, com a comparison I hope you'll like, that guy very easily could have been, like, a Billy Zane character. Oh, yeah. But he absolutely wasn't, because this movie just it doesn't have that sort of, like, sharp edge to it. And right. I really like, I mean, I can't make this claim, but if you told me that James Cameron studied out of Africa a little bit to figure out the blockbuster scope management of Titanic... I would believe that because right. I mean, this is a, Redford and Streep are essentially like Rose and Jack 20 years older in a different part of the world. 
And one of the things that I really like about this movie, because we talked about how silly like their dialogue is in Titanic, but one of the things that we didn't talk about is part of the reason it's so silly is because you're listening to 18-year-olds try to articulate their life philosophy. Right. And like, that's ridiculous. But these two, when she's like early 30s, he's probably like mid-40s. Right. They ju- their coming together is so existential and their banter about what each other believes is like really like just good writing. Right. I just, I thought this movie had so many like good lines in it too. Yeah. Like the one where the husband says to Robert Redford, once he's figured out they're like sleeping together, he's like, you could have asked. And he says, I I I did. did. And she said, yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like so good. Yes. The, The script is like, and that's what ultimately like makes, in my opinion, this a, like a watchable movie is that like once you get into it, like for me, it never it's I mean, it, yes, it was like stream. Uh, it was like buzz. Or what do you call it? Binge streaming a miniseries. But like I found it compelling enough once you buy into the Meryl Streep character to like think that ultimately this is a good good. OK, um, I do. I think it's a quite good movie, but. I I can't say that it's a watchable movie. Like I what I don't I couldn't watch this again for like another. But do you think seven people should probably. watch this movie? Yes, totally give it a watch. Um, and I think you'll be impressed by its subtlety and its control. Um, but like this is there's no like compulsive rewatchability value here. So probably a a plight good bad from me. If we can get into a little bit of how our mothers have influenced our own sort of movie philosophy in specific here. Um, uh-huh. I feel like what appeals to me about this movie is what appeals to me about a lot of movies that like we disagree on. Is it the fact that it's mostly about like, you know, I'm charmed by like just a character chasing a dream, uh-huh. you know, like the natural you thought was boring as sin. And I think that's like one of the better sports movies ever made, you know, okay. like, I don't know. I think I like the sort of novel, the novel-esque movie that just sort uh-huh. of unfolds as a series of episodes. I mean, it's also why I like movies like Animal House, um, you know, like even Independence Day, like is a well sort of contained, I know we disagree about this, is like a well contained sort of episode movie mm-hmm. that sort of unfolds like a novel about aliens taking over the world. I mean, a, a commercial novel, but a novel nonetheless. Do we want to do two seconds for responsibility's sake on like why there wasn't like a more de- developed like Messiah Somali character in here? Yeah, you think it with a movie with 162 minutes. No, um, <sighs> sure, no, yeah, I, I definitely don't think I don't think there's anything uh, offensive in this movie. Um, right, it's just like a. St- story that has chosen what it wants to be about and in that way is like unfortunately neglectful considering what must have been happening around yeah yeah um should we get into the uh the solemn side of things yeah so it's interesting to me that your mom picked this movie because this is like also i would say like one of my favorite movies that we've never talked about before i love yeah i love this movie um so we're talking about uh, the 2001 movie Royal Tenenbaums. It's uh, Wes Anderson's third picture after Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. Um, if you don't know the story, which I, I feel like most—I mean, most people of our generation know Wes Anderson pretty well—but um, this is a—it's a story of uh, family prodigies, uh, the Tenenbaums, uh, Margot Richie and Chaz and their dad Royal who's always kind of been a screw up and he's a manipulator and he's like he's sort of like a charming liar who has some you know you get the sense he's like a shady lawyer and their mom is always like pushing them really hard um but you get the sense that basically like, Royal has like ruined their young lives so then we jump <laughs> ahead and all the kids are are 30 and Royal's living out of a <laughs> out of a hotel um, that he can't pay for. Well, the inciting incident is that he like gets kicked out of the hotel. Yeah. Uh, upon hearing that uh, Ethelene, his his ex, his estranged, not quite ex, but estranged wife, 
is uh, is trying to is going to remarry her accountant, uh, a very um, button up, very kind Danny Glover. Uh, Royal doesn't take kindly to that because he still feels he has some ownership over this family and he has high blood pressure. <laughs> so he spins that into uh, uh, a story about how he is dying and needs a, a last throw of the dice to reconnect with his family. Yeah, and he's played by Gene Hackman, by the way. Oh, um, yeah. Well, th- this movie is star-studded. So good. Yeah, it's so star-studded. Uh, Angelica Houston, Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson, Danny Glover. Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth Paltrow, Yeah. And Pagoda. Uh, Bill oh, Bill Murray. <laughs> yeah, don't forget Seymour Cassell and Pagoda. Yeah, um, <laughs> Mr. Little Jeans. <laughs> um, okay. Do we? Should we toss to to my mom? Yeah, let's hear what she has to say. He was a prominent litigator until the mid '80s, when he was disbarred and briefly imprisoned. No one in his family had spoken to him in three years. Well, welcome to the Portland to Omaha segment of Be Real Guys this week, where I'm joined by my wonderful dear mother, Kathleen Solon. Ma, thanks for doing the pod. My pleasure. And so we've selected the movie Royal Tenenbaums, the 2001 Wes Anderson movie, which... We watched pretty frequently, I think, in like my early teenage years. How many times do you think we probably watched that together? Well, at least eight, sixteen, somewhere. <laughs> some some multiple of eight. Sixteen. Yeah, probably something like that. Um, in whole, I mean, if you if we count the times we fell asleep. So before we jump in, I I feel like it's 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 just interesting, and I I want your take because I thinking about doing this podcast was making me think about it. But I feel like growing up, Grace, my younger sister, and I, um, I feel like you really sort of were the the curator of like constant movie entertainment, and in that way, like we were often kind of watching what you liked like we watched movies that dad liked but those felt to me more like you're 14 and so now maybe we'll check out goodfellas and like with you i think it was more of kind of like what you were into as long as it was appropriate is that fair yes yeah and also you know taking opportunities to expose you you know to different things just figuring out this is how old they are and this is what might interest them and yeah. I guess they just even assumed if I liked it, you guys would like it. <laughs> that got me in trouble with that one movie, remember? <laughs> Midnight Run. Midnight Run. Yeah, the De Niro, Charles Grodin movie. Because you... I don't know how old you were, but at the end you're like, Mom, he said the F word 87 times. They do say a lot in that movie. And Dad was none too pleased. But And, and I just, you know, I, I just said, you know. I, fuck it. I don't want him, I don't want him, yeah, I said fuck it. <laughs> I said, you know, I don't want him to be intimidated by the word, and I don't want him to be impressed by the word. So now he's inured to the word. You know, that's all. Uh huh. It's just a word. So that sounds like a hell a hell of a rationalization. It, you know, <laughs> it's where I was going. I think it's good. Um, so when did you first Royal Tenenbaums came out in two thousand one? So I can't imagine we probably didn't watch this with you. Uh, until a couple years later when I would have been like 13 or 14. When did you first see it? I'm going to guess that's when I saw it as well. Okay. You could, I would have never seen it on the big screen, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, for years, of course, just assumed that this was a Coen Brothers because that's every quirky <laughs> movie I loved back then. I just attributed to them. So yeah. As you well know, I, probably, you know, I went for years saying, oh, the Coen Brothers movie, <laughs> thinking... And we do have like a small like little joke in the family that like any sort of like offbeat comedy, like any like Noah Baumbach, Wes Anderson movie is like just basically a Cohen movie in your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Wes Anderson, but who does uh, oh the dog show one, Best in Show? Who's that? Oh, Christopher Guest. Yes, yeah, yeah. Those are all Cohen brothers. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> like Mighty Wind is definitely a Cohen brothers movie. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Best in Show. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
Those guys well, are even more talented than we thought. So prolific. Like a half dozen movies a year. Um, so maybe that's where we should dive in. Because I think the interesting thing about this movie, also looking back, is this is one of the first times I think I was like confronted as a child with like people's taste like helping them decide what movies are good because like this is like an offbeat comedy like it's not a normal sort of like broad comedy and you know when you're like under 12 movies are either awesome or boring and those are like the only two categories but I remember you saying that like critics didn't really get it and uh do you remember like what what drew you to this to this like style of humor oh it's just it's understated and it's it's dry and i i just think it's you know the fact that chaz and his sons are wearing red jumpsuits right workout suits through the whole movie and then switch to black i mean yeah. i just think that that is so clever and um you know you've got the polka dot mice and then at the end there's the Dalmatian. The Dalmatian, yeah. You know, there's just all these. I just think those are so. That's that's very entertaining to me. That that cleverness on so many levels. Um, yeah, I just, I, I just, it's just, I just laugh every time I see it in different spots as well. Yeah. But I, I just think the family dynamic is just so, and I, I see parallels, you know, to to my family growing up, and maybe that's where you just feel a a kindredness to these people and maybe if people didn't have that kind of dysfunction that that family had they don't get the humor in it yeah it just seems foreign gene hackman even kind of looks like your dad as an older man a little bit doesn't he a little bit my dad definitely had those glasses that mustache and those yeah but my dad had more hair and was better looking but (laughs) and would never wear that suit uh, no, no, much more tasteful, much more tasteful. And, and there's some similarities there too that are endearing. I, you know, my dad, although not, you know, not the con man or the liar, in fact, just the opposite of Royal Tannenbaum, the Royal Tannenbaum character would say things hurtful and do things hurtful and then be absolutely clueless. Right. And that kind of general cluelessness that he had was reminiscent of my father a lot. <laughs> what did you notice watching it this time that you did not prior times? You know, this time I um, I really tuned in more to the visual. The um, um, you know, Grace, your sister, and I were watching it together on Mother's Day, and she's like, "Look at how it you know the the color schemes with the browns and the reds." Mm-hmm. And the set the sets are great, and the the wardrobe that that she underneath her fur through the whole movie is wearing right margot gwyneth paltrow's margot is wearing the same little style of you know very adolescent you know striped polo shirt mm-hmm. and you've got oh that's just who is wearing a suit as a young boy is now in the you know, in the workout clothes. And then you've got Richie, no matter what suit he's wearing, he's got, you know, his little tennis sweatband on his forehead and 20, right. you know, and, and how they, how they in costuming kind of still had these, this connection to their childhood that they couldn't give up. Yeah. Um, and just yeah. building the, of the setting of that home and how it probably, you right. know, it's pretty obvious that it once had such incredible grandeur, but had seen and still is beautiful and exquisite but obviously has seen better days. Yeah. And that the house kind of like hadn't grown up either, even though like none of them had lived there in so long, there's still that like closet that is like floor to ceiling with board games. And it's just... Havelina's off the wall. It's noticed because nothing has been moved and changed in the right. 20 years. Can I bounce this one off of you? Sure. Um, a thing that I noticed in this movie uh, that I had never noticed before. I mean, I've always thought Angelica Houston was very good in it. Um, you sort of need someone with her calm, I think, in a Wes Anderson movie. But um, the thing that I'd never noticed, and it's just kind of like one line, like the you know you can see every single way in which like Royal kind of like ruined these now adult people's lives. But there's the the line where um, and Angelica Houston's like, "How long have you smoked?" And Margot's like, 22 years. She's like, well, I think you should quit. And I think, like, 
that's like a really funny line like it's played for a laugh but there's also like that tiny nugget in there of like oh like maybe that is also the way in which like her style of mothering kind of like contributed to sort of like the wreck of what you see now like she was so eager to like encourage them to like be prodigies but you know maybe her approach was always like well I think that's what you should do like there's a simple answer for that like just do that and like she probably maybe never like conversed with them on their terms to the point where you would know where she would like know her daughter was smoking or something like that yeah I, I go a different direction on that I think she with with incredible respect for her children's and her children's talent maybe talk to them like they were adults, but right. in that scene, Margot is an adult. Yeah. So maybe that's, I, I, I don't know that she should have done more. I, I, yeah, I think she cares, she states, but I can see that. Certainly there's, um, you know, as she said when she and Royal were walking in one scene and he's he apologizes and you've done a great job with the kids and she's like, well, you know, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I'm sure she has her doubts. She, uh, um, she certainly had her own career going on and, you know, didn't have, you know, was unable to keep her marriage together or whatever. So I'm sure she had some, you know, some doubts there, as all mothers do. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I think she, there's a kindness and respect that, um, you know, she walks a fine line there between um, Royal and um, the Danny Glover character and the, the kids and what's going on. And I think she... Uh, and her, she's obviously successful at it in her career, and I think she, I think that, I, I like that character. I think she's very classy and, you know, always, you know, in a skirt, suit, nylons and heels. So right. Very much proper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting role. We should probably go through some, at least, like, favorite lines, right? Like, that's half the joy of having watched a movie like this 15 times. I'm not thinking, you know, lines are not coming to mind off the top of my head, but scenes, you know, the um, Chaz chasing Eli through the house, you know, and then, you know, him lying in the, then lying in the very peaceful Oriental garden and him saying, I'm in trouble and I think I have a problem and yes, I have, I do too. I, um, I just think that's kind of a lovely, you know, culmination of, I always really like the just the way they introduce Eli in terms of like the kind of like weird like he can say anything celebrity that he has where he's talking about the book and he's walking down the hall and he says everybody knows Custer died at Little Bighorn what this book presupposes is maybe he didn't and you know what I noticed this time for the first time was the um uh that her um archaeology it's all the um Plains Indian Chiefs pictures on the wall. So, like the Bodmore. Oh. Pictures that you see um, that uh, in the uh, Prince Maximilian's artist. That's a really good observation. And Eli Cash's book cover. Yeah. Yeah. So he seems to have fed, having not their genius, not their intelligence, he seems to have fed off that family in a superficial way that right. made him famous. You know, also the narration. When you, the Baldwin. Baldwin's voice, yeah, and that dryness yeah. and that and that third third person, is that third person narration is uh yeah. just it lets you you get you get a feel of really, you know, this intimate view into their lives. I guess it, to me it just more reflects the humor in, in everyday life and in family life. Um yeah, oh, and of course, the other great thing is um, his grave, his gravestone. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, which which reads what? Died while bravely saving his family from a sinking battleship, you know, which right. he caused the storm and put holes in the ship, but still came back and <laughs> saved them. So, uh, That's yeah. right. There's redemption. Hell of a damn grave, as Royal would say. Um, well, Mom... Thanks for taking the time on the uh, your one special noted day a year society gives you to talk to me about this movie. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Immediately after saying this, Chance realized it was true. <laughs> That's the best line. You got it. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, love you too. 
My God, what a kicker on that, <laughs> on the end of that. That was, that was so heartwarming. So I feel like we don't, we don't want to spend too much time on this. So I think I'm just going to come out with a big claim and maybe we can uh, talk about whether you think it's true or not. I will certainly say this is my favorite Wes Anderson movie, but I think I would also mount an argument that it is the best. What do you think? Um, it is not my favorite. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go all the way with you, but I would say like as a constructed, again, like novel-esque movie with mm-hmm. these chapters, it's literally broken up into this novel. It's like, yeah, this shows you a fake book at the beginning. Right. Like, it's a movie good enough that even if Wes Anderson like doesn't make any money for any movies ever again, like people will still give him money to make movies. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's that good. Yeah. It's really good. Um, and he got some performances out of people that are just like unbelievable. Yeah. Cause this is like the real like Renaissance where Bill Murray started to go serious Mm-hmm. And I think this movie like really cemented that he like can still be funny, but he can also like be very sad. <laughs> Definitely can. Um, and Hackman is just well. So the, I mean, Hackman is the main reason I I think this movie is so good. And for me, it's a little bit reductive to say this, but I think the difference between Wes Anderson movies that like fundamentally work and fundamentally kind of don't, at least in my book, is like having a person at the beginning who can create some gravitational pull for all the beautiful planets and moons and stars of his movies. Um, So it doesn't feel like they're just like whizzing in space. And Hackman, and I think like a Ray Fiennes in Grand Budapest, even though these are are much different movies stylistically. Right. you need you need that center and he is the anchor to all of these people like giving great performances right yeah i mean he's like a miniaturist like everything on screen and like your mom was talking about like everything from the costumes to like thing like arbitrary objects that you can't even really make out on the desks like later come into play and they're like important and if you look at them are designed and like beautiful like just think about how much time those Gwyneth Paltrow portraits took someone to hand draw yeah and like and, I mean yeah the I really, board games too like that was amazing and that's why we rewatch movies that's the whole point that we have this podcast is like it's one of the movies that feeds people like you and I yeah absolutely I mean I probably watch this movie once a year right um I and the other thing I think about Hackman is his whole Royal's such an interesting character because you can break down like what he wants. Like, you know, he wants to be redeemed and and he wants to have love before it's too late. But Royal's ethos as a character is so interesting in the way it runs up against what you think about Wes Anderson wanting because he loves things to be so neat. Like he just like loves the mise en scène and like the like there will not be anything in my shot, please, that I do not want in my shot. And Royal the character, like when he goes around sort of just like saying his like kind of meaningless expressions, he's just like, I've been loving this, scrapping, yelling, mixing it up. Like he he's like putting off this thing. Loving that, every like, minute with this damn crew. <laughs> It's that should run counter to what Wes is, and it's like such an interesting battle that like he brings so much happiness to this universe that would otherwise be sad and neat. Yeah, that's what I think is so funny about this movie and why it is such a good Wes Anderson movie and like a very accessible one, too, is that like Gene Hackman doesn't want to be in a Wes Anderson movie. People didn't know what a Wes Anderson movie was yet. It was just like, let's get Gene Hackman. But I think that's what makes like the great Gene or the great, um, well, both Gene Hackman performances, but also Wes Anderson movies is when the star has the audacity to like not be a supporting character in a Wes Anderson movie. Totally. Totally. Can I just, I wanted to like just congratulate, I think it was you or your mom who brought up, uh, I know it was you who brought up the, uh, the things uh, Eli Cash says when asked directly about any work he's ever <laughs> performed. Yeah. Like, why wasn't Wildcat a commercial success? Well, it was written in sort of an obsolete vernacular. And then he just looks Rawr. longingly <laughs> longingly into the camera, goes raw, and then Wildcat, and then leaves. <laughs> Incredible. It's- 
Uh, well, that's what I love about this movie, too, is that if you just explain it to someone, it sounds like the darkest, like, Requiem for a uh, Dream level shit. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's about this, like, mescaline addict writer and this, like, guy who's in such p- bad PTSD, he can't change his clothes and has gotten his kids to follow him. And yeah. this woman uh, basically, like, hooks up with her brother that she grew up with even though they are adopted they like grew up together still frowned upon but hey what isn't these days (laughs) but the movie has this like such a whimsical like lightness to about like hey people are just being people man the another really small thing i like about this movie that i just don't think you see in other wes anderson movies like there are very clear moments of improv in this movie like when ben stiller slaps away gene hackman's hand as he's leaving the room or just like some of the things bill murray says to dudley um and i just don't feel like actors in later west movies are given that leeway because that's not the kind of like product it is (laughs) when he sets up the, the the wooden blocks and he's just like did i do all right he's like yeah my god fascinating but just (laughs) (laughs) but just like something so like horrifying to hear about yourself again out of responsibility let's do our uh a moment on uh uh royal tenenbaum's playful racism we gotta do that because it's just (sighs) wes anderson doesn't know how to handle that and it's just like too bad that he brought it in here because it's fine if you want to portray like i think it's so fascinating because like that is the character it's the character, but Wes Anderson does not know how to get him appropriately off the hook for it. But the, and like, but the comments are just so like, if you really boil them down, they're so like, I don't even, they're just so far from like saying anything. They're just cues for something offensive. I just, I just think like whenever Wes tries to do like bring in the politics of the real world, you're in dangerous territory. Cause like Danny Glover just like forgives him. There's never any like, Hey Royal, like I think you're a son of a bitch because you clearly didn't like me because I'm black. Like, well, that's Wes the reason know- that he's a son of a bitch. Like that's the whole mm, point. I mean, of- he's also just an asshole. He's no, a son of a bitch. Even the term he's a son, son of a bitch of because a bi- he lied his way back into the house. Right. But I think by the end of it, he re- like Danny Glover realizes that when he says you're not an asshole, you're a son of a bitch. Like, I feel like, the implications of those two terms, like asshole just being like empirically, like not a good guy and like son of a bitch, like being breaking it down. Like you're not from like good stock. Mm. And like, it's, I mean, that's sort of the implication of the term. Like you're no, just I like son that. of a bitch. You're, you're not from good stock is a good way to put it because Henry Sherman is from good stock. Like right. look at him, I'm, look at his son. Yeah. So yeah. All right. I buy that. Um, yeah, I, I didn't rate this movie with Kathleen, but it's a she would absolutely argue good, good. And oh, that was I. that was never in question. This all is right, a movie good. very much for me and for all thinking people in the <laughs> in the canon. Well, um, it's a Criterion movie after all. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, folks, thanks for indulging us and our mothers on on this the mom pod. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Be Real Guys, real like a film reel with uh, two E's. Listen to us, please, on SoundCloud or iTunes or Google Play Music or Stitcher. And uh, write to us if you want at berealguys at gmail.com. We'll be back with you soon. Noah? Sir, I just want to say again thank you to my mother, Nancy, who uh, agreed to do this and that your taste in movies has definitely influenced mine in a positive and meaningful way. And thank you for that gift. Let's say we ride on into that friscalating dusk light. I'll talk to you soon, my friend. All right. Please. Bye-bye. Give me second grace.